hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 33, Divide and Conquer. Last time, Adolf Hitler drove over 500 pounds of dynamite unharmed, gave a speech to his conquering men, and then flew back to Berlin, which allowed the remaining soldiers, Hitler's knights for this new world order, to get back to their main occupation, looting from the conquered. Initially, the pretext was a search for weapons with which to resist the occupiers of Warsaw and western Poland. But after a short time, the greed was blatant and the cover story all but dropped. The looting was just as efficient as everything else the Germans had done. And by November of that same year, more than 10,000 train cars weighed down with Polish property was shipped back to Germany. Not that the German soldiers needed leadership in this venture, but they certainly had it. As Warsaw's new district governor, Dr. Ludwig Fischer, after some looking around, decided to confiscate the mansion of industrialist Gustav Wertheim, known as Villa Julia. When his wife, Julia Kremsinski, yes, the abode was named after her, protested, the governor's men simply dragged her out to the garden terrace and shot her in the head. The Varsovians could see for themselves what was happening, that this was just more than a lost battle. The Nazis meant this new dynamic to remain in place forever. So they fought back, but in a passive manner. Those who had an art collection, or pieces worth stealing, and therefore protecting, donated them to the Zakita National Gallery. The donators assumed, correctly, that the underground system that was coming to life within Warsaw would hide the nearly priceless artworks until after the war. And in this, they had some success. Keeping in mind that this is a story of hindsight, that the great offensive in the West had not started yet, nor had there yet been a Battle of Britain to alter Hitler's plans, Germany was put on the defensive, internationally speaking, with its attack and occupation of its neighbor to the east. So, in a sort of passive defensive movement, shipments of food were sent to the former Polish capital to help those who survived the bombings and artillery assaults. This was also per the agreement that helped produce the capitulation of Warsaw. But the food that came in was not nearly enough to make a difference in the Varsovians' daily lives. But, not missing a chance of good propaganda, Nazi cameras capture the long lines of those waiting for bread, the handing out of the life-sustaining article. But there was just one problem. Those on the receiving end were not smiling in gratitude. Why should they, of course, is a question that comes to mind. But the handlers wanted to capture the smiles, to film the beginning of a reproachment. After all, the war was over. Yet, there were no smiles attached to the outstretched hands. Frustrated, the Wehrmacht soldiers, the ones handing out the bread, swiped it back, and would not return it unless a smile was forthcoming. The Nazis got their smiles. The defeated got their bread for a day. Those that worked on Governor Fisher's staff drove around the city and soon noticed another problem. 
Not unexpectedly, the mutual threat of Germany's invasion brought the Jews and the Gentiles, mostly Catholics, together. They had dug trenches together, resisted the tanks together, and tended to each other's wounded after each bombing raid. And considering what the Nazis had in store for the Jewish Poles, not that the details had been worked out yet, this united front, this cohesion, was not desirable. Something had to be done. An answer was soon proposed, and the separation of the two groups was to be achieved with a scalpel, not a broadsword. Soon after, German-controlled newsreels and the German-dominated newspaper, the New Warsaw Courier, started up during the second week of October, covered stories of Jews helping the Nazis find caches of guns and ammo, of German soldiers saving Catholics from a threatening group of Jewish youngsters, of Jews cheering as Polish soldiers were led away by Soviet soldiers to Siberia. Sadly, it didn't take much for the old memories to rise and for the new camaraderie to fade away. At 9 p.m. one night in late December, the lights throughout the capital went out per the curfew. And as the lights died away, the Jewish defiance that would one day rage throughout the capital got its start. Hidden by the dark, Mark Edelman, a young Jew, quietly but quickly, made his way back to his old high school. Before the invasion, Edelman couldn't find much to be motivated about, and consequently, had the reputation of being lazy, or, to be blunt, a bum. But after watching two German soldiers force an elderly Jewish man up on a barrel, and making him dance as they cut piece by piece away from his long beard, a fire of determination was lit in the youth. He would be no one's entertainment. He would resist, and for right now, that meant helping distribute a newspaper that spoke the truth of the occupation, of the treatment, theft, and starvation of the Varsovians, but in particular, of the Jews of Warsaw. This newspaper, and there was certainly more than one, was the activity of the Bund. Their founding belief was that, as Poland was their future, their resistance was required until the invaders were driven out. As careful as Edelman and the others with him were, they knew if their mimeograph machine was discovered and destroyed, the others would continue. Even torture would not compel Edelman to give up information about the other resistance cells, simply because no one in his group knew the details of the others. This way, the capture of one newspaper or its group could not affect another. But together, they were all countering the lies of the general government, run by Hitler's personal attorney, Hans Frank. Their crudely made circulars spoke the truth of this new life within the capital. The newspaper supplies and articles were written by others, but Edelman offered up his youth by staying up two or three nights a week to turn the handle that produced the hundred copies by morning. Then he loaned the resistance his courage by taking the printouts to be dropped off for distribution. Edelman decided early on, if he were caught and killed, it was because he was doing something. The course of his life, and even of his death, was his to determine. 
Despite the courage it took out to put these relatively few-in-number anti-German newspapers, the official German paper, the New Warsaw Courier, was a huge success in the capital. Of course, that's because the Varsovians were scanning the long list of obituaries to find missing family and friends. Besides, as all the radios were to be turned in, some news, although clearly untrustworthy, was better than nothing. By the end of the year, some 87,000 transistor radios, of the supposed 125,000, were in German hands. The rest were probably listening to the BBC's new Polish language service, or better yet, Radio Paris, which put out the announcements and speeches of the Polish government in exile. The new leader there, General Sikorski, did his best to raise the spirits of the people in former Poland. Still, there were some glimpses of truth in the German-controlled paper. Of course, almost always, the news was bad. The Curry reported that former Warsaw Mayor Stephen Starzynski, the man who led the resistance of the capital, was on his way to Dachau, where he would end his days. And then, keeping the pressure on the Jews of Warsaw, the paper announced that starting December 1st, 1939, all Jews and Jewesses within the general government who are over 10 years of age are required to wear on their right sleeve of their inner and outer garment a white band at least 10 centimeters wide with the Star of David on it. The announcement went on to say that the Jews were responsible for producing their own armbands and that violators would be imprisoned. If the purpose of this announcement was to single out those of the Jewish community for particularly brutal treatment, its initial accomplishment really just created confusion and only then apprehension. Soon after the article came out, tens of thousands of Jews were asking themselves the same questions German Jews had been asking since the racial laws came out in September of 1935. What constitutes a Jew? What if only one parent was Jewish, but not the other? What if the Jewish parents had died and the person was raised Catholic, or with no religious identity at all? What if one's parents converted to Protestantism before they were born, or after they were born? What if they were an orphan? The questions went on and on. Then came the mad dash as everyone who may have been affected searched for their baptismal certificates or obtained a forged one. Either way, the bombing and destruction of so many homes hindered this process. But what the article did not produce was clarification and stability, the government's ultimate goal. So soon after, the general government printed out copies of the 1935 racial laws. A person was considered a Jew if three of their grandparents were full Jews. A marriage that was mixed between a Jew and non-Jew was illegal and afforded no protection. In fact, that marriage held no sway under the 1935 law. It was the blood of the parents and the grandparents that mattered. So, for those that were Jewish under this guideline, the next question they had to ask themselves was, whether to declare themselves openly. After all, so many records had been destroyed. Those Poles that weren't Jewish, understandably, felt safer. But they should have realized 
their day would come. Hitler had made his feelings clear about the Poles, Slavs, and Jews many years ago, in thousands of speeches. This left the Mischlings, the mixed breeds. They may have only had two Jewish grandparents, but really, they were no better than the Jews, nor safer. Their blood was tainted as well. Meanwhile, Isaac Zuckerman, the young Zionist who had dashed about Poland with the coming of the invasion, first digging trenches in Warsaw, then fleeing east to keep up with his colleagues, only to end up in Kabul and discover that the Marshal Smigli Riddits had no plans for a general defense, now found himself in northern Poland on his way to Vilna, or Vilnius, as it would soon be known. Dodging any Germans he came into proximity to, Zuckerman reached Vilnius on September 19th, the same day the Soviets captured the city. But that wasn't Zuckerman's problem. He had to keep going north, to find a way into Lithuania and establish a route for Zionists to leave the continent by ship and make for Palestine. But then, in what seemed a stroke of luck, the Soviets, in their treaty of friendship and non-aggression with Lithuania, decided to give Vilnius to the small Baltic country. So now, Zuckerman just had to wait for the Soviet troops to leave, and then continue on north in some relative safety. But it was not to be. Zuckerman's Zionist superiors, temporarily set up in Kabul, realized there was no way to get the hundreds of thousands, perhaps over a million, Zionists north and on their way to Palestine. They were either trapped by the Soviets or the Germans. Either way, Palestine would not be their destination. So instead, Zuckerman was ordered to go into Soviet-occupied Poland and establish a resistance group. At the very least, the Zionist leaders decided they, in the person of Isaac, had to assist their people as much as was possible. And Zuckerman had to move. The border between German and Soviet Poland was still open, but wouldn't be that way for long. In fact, it would be closed on October 26th, as soon as the exact line of demarcation was established between the two land-hungry and paranoid powers. Saying a quick goodbye to his parents, Zuckerman left Vilnius and made his way through Soviet-controlled Poland. It would be the last time he saw his parents alive. Along the way, the young Zionist reverted to form, namely trying to re-establish local Zionist groups in Kovo, Lutsk, and Bielystok. After all, it was all he knew, all he had done. But now, his superiors wanted him to settle in Lvov, one of the largest cities of the Carpathians, and undo what the local Leninist youth groups, or Komsomol, had accomplished. Namely, win back the hearts and minds of the youth. But what's more, he had to also establish a political and military resistance to the Soviet masters, something he had absolutely no idea how to do. The young man, of course, made mistakes at first, jumping into this world of cloak and dagger. He met with people he didn't need to. He spent too much time on the streets, where watchful eyes could pick him up. He bought train tickets out in the open. The only thing that probably saved him was his youth and naivete. He certainly didn't act 
like a conspirator. Besides, the NKVD, or Soviet intelligence, didn't have a file on him, like it did so many of his mentors. But then, remembering what he read in all those spy novels when lazing around, Zuckerman discovered the basics of spycraft. He never went out if he could help it. He never met anyone directly unless he trusted them or it was imperative. As for goods or services like train tickets, he realized it was wiser to buy them from corrupt Soviet officials. After all, they just wanted the money. They didn't care who was doing what as long as they got paid and did not get into any trouble. Throughout the rest of the year, Zuckerman built up his contacts and battled the Komsomol for the next generation of leaders in the area. And by the end of the year, it was time to take his small organization to the next level. Under the guise of a New Year's Eve party, Zuckerman invited the heads of various other Zionist groups that would become the basis of the labor Zionist underground. The meeting had its successes and failures. The part of Poland under Soviet control was divided into five sectors, thus detailing responsibility when someone needed help. The truth was, of the people in the small room, most had managed to leave Warsaw before its capitulation, and they felt guilt about those they left behind, which included family members and friends. As for the roughly two million Jews still trapped in the German-occupied zone, it was clear the group leaders assembled here could do little from Lvov. They had their hands full. So, someone had to go back and organize a resistance underground, right under the noses of Warsaw's new leaders. The very idea terrified the men in the room. Though only a few were brave enough to admit it at the time, almost all admitted it later. The gathering had its disappointments for Zuckerman as well. Several Zionist groups did not send representatives, as they, in relative terms, trusted the Soviets more than the Nazis, due to their political leanings. But they would learn their mistakes in time. No, the night was not an unqualified success. Still, some things were arranged. The labor Zionist underground was officially established. Zones of responsibility had been set. But what about the people to the west in Warsaw? Their people. Someone had to go back. So a name was chosen. Zivia Lubetkin would be sent to the occupied capital. No one expected her to save all two million Jews under the Nazi yoke, but she was expected to do her part. The 25-year-old set out for Warsaw in January 1940. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So um, this episode's totally random winner of the uh, Churchill or FDR coffee mug is um, Andrew H. from Wapping, London, in the UK. I hope it's pronounced Wapping. That's certainly the way it's spelled. Um, Andrew, maybe you could let me know. I'll email you in a week or so and get the address from you. Um, I want you to hear it first here because it's just a lot more fun. So... Um, Thank you, everyone, for supporting the show. I really do appreciate it. Um, the goal is to be doing this full-time by the end of the year, and your membership goes a long way to making that happen. So I will be seeing you as soon as I can with the last Churchill episode.